Welcome back to another episode of the Geopolitical Pickle. Today, we're going to dive into the world of Syrian geopolitics and the thaw in their decade-long frozen relations with the Arab world. Firstly, I want to go back and explore what was behind the severing of relations to begin with, and then what has changed from then to now. And to help us, we're going to have a guest on later. But first, for some background context, I want to go back and give a general overview of what has happened over the last decade in Syria and how Captagon ties into this. Syria has been ruled by the regime of Bashar al-Assad since July 2000, following the death of his father, Hafiz al-Assad, who himself ruled from 1971 until his death in June 2000. This 50-year dynasty has been threatened from insurgent groups and the ongoing civil war. However, they have managed to remain in power despite the international isolation, the sanctions, and the pressure that has come from within. The Arab Spring was a series of uprisings across the Islamic world, starting in Tunisia in December 2010 and spreading to Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria and Bahrain. Sustained street demonstrations also took place in Morocco, Iraq, Algeria, Lebanon, Jordan, Kuwait, Oman and Sudan. The protests were enormous in scale and unprecedented in their unified frustrations felt across borders and were at their heart an expression of frustration at corruption of their authoritarian regimes and economic stagnation felt by the average person. In March 2011, Syria's citizens took to the streets, fed up with the corruption, with the brutal oppression and with the Assad family rule. Assad responded with extreme force deploying the police and military who unleash waves of massive violence, huge arrests and a brutal crackdown on the population, resulting in thousands of deaths and tens of thousands of wounded. As a result, Syria's Arab League membership was revoked almost immediately in March 2011, and the country spiraled into a civil war that has since killed nearly half a million people and displaced around 23 million and continues to this day. The Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC, convened their fourth extraordinary summit in Mecca on the 15th and 16th of August 2012, and Syria's membership in the organization was similarly suspended indefinitely, and formal relations with most countries in the Islamic world were severed. This was due to the fact that the Syrian regime had been waging war against its own people and wielded heavy weapons against protesters which had killed many thousands openly and resulted in the disappearance in many more opposition activists following the 17-month uprising in the country. Until recently, Syria has remained on the outer of the Arab world. That is, partially until Captagon started appearing in many capitals, from Riyadh to Abu Dhabi and even within the EU. And so what is Captagon? Captagon was originally the brand name, brand name of a psychoactive medicine produced in the 1960s by a German pharmaceutical company. It was described as a, it was prescribed it was prescribed as a treatment for attention deficit disorder, narcolepsy, and used as a central nervous system stimulant. It belongs to the amphetamine family of drugs, and by the 1980s, most countries had banned its production after determining that long-term usage can cause extreme depression, sleep deprivation, heart 
and blood diseases and malnutrition. Production, however, has surged in Syria in recent years, closely connected to the Assad family and their close political allies. The scale of their operations are enormous. Over a billion pills of Captagon were seized in Arab countries between 2019 and 2022 alone. Although the current substance most likely bears little resemblance to the original product and can contain various other narcotic substances, many of the risks associated with the original product and surrounding addiction remain the same. Many of these Middle Eastern countries have large numbers of addicts living within their country now, for example, Saudi Arabia. Many of the youth have lives often marked by boredom, even with some social activities opening up to them, which in turn leads some of them to turn to drugs as a way to vent, relax, and entertain themselves. At the same time, many of these countries are looking at ways of dealing with the trade in Captagon within their own countries. Relations with Syria have begun thawing for the first time in over a decade, and Damascus has been invited back into the fold of the Arab League and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. So is Captagon behind the revival of these relations, or is it part of a wider regional shift, and what may the future hold for Syrian relations with the rest of the region? To help explain this regional dynamics and the geopolitics at the heart of it, we had the privilege of talking with Caroline Rose. Caroline is a director of the Strategic Blind Spots Portfolio at the New Lines Institute and has a huge amount of experience, specifically in the intersection of defense, security, illicit trades, and is one of the preeminent experts in the field of Captagon and its relation to the Syrian al-Assad regime. The interview was originally recorded on the 30th of August, prior to a war breaking out between Hamas and the Israeli state. However, the geopolitical implications for Syria remain just as prevalent today. So with that, I want to move on to the interview. And at the end, please let us know what you think. So first of all, welcome, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. No, the pleasure is all ours. And so first of all, I want to ask what exactly is Captagon? Uh, what makes Captagon and why has it become an issue uh, recently in the Middle East? Certainly. Well, Captagon is an amphetamine type stimulant, uh, a drug that is extremely popular in the Middle East, but it originated actually in Europe. Uh, by a German pharmaceutical company called Degusa AG, where it was produced in the 1960s as a drug that could help with, for example, attention deficit disorder, help with productivity. Occasionally, it was seen as something that could aid weight loss as well. And it was available on the licit pharmaceutical market for a few years until the 1980s. It was scheduled by the World Health Organization given a series of um, uh, health concerns, but also at the time, some alternative uh, drugs that popped up on the market for ADHD and other disorders. And it was phased out of the licit market throughout the 1980s and 1990s and early 2000s. However, uh, there was illicit production that first started in the Balkans, made its way through Turkey, and then settled in the Levant uh, throughout the early 2000s. And uh, that's when we started to see Captagon, particularly in Syria, become a serious challenge. Uh, and then most recently, we've seen Captagon production explode, particularly in Syrian regime-held territories, 
as well as demand rates explode in the Gulf region primarily. And now this has become one of the most popular um, narcotic drugs uh, in, in, in the region, no doubt. Um, you've said that it started, uh, the legal production of it started uh, uh, back in the, the last century, literally. Um, why is it appealing now for uh, the illicit consum consumption? Certainly. Well, I think that Captagon is a popular substance for a few reasons. One of which, uh, you know, is is its history, which I mentioned a bit. Uh, the fact that Captagon used to be licit, the fact that it has that legal history is appealing, particularly amongst users in a region where drug use is extremely taboo, particularly with drugs perceived as the harder drugs, such as cocaine and heroin. Instead, Captagon, you know, there is that justification of, oh, it used to be a legal drug um, in the form of phenethylene. And well, because of that, it's not as bad as other, you know, these other substances. And then also you have the association with productivity as well. Uh, it's very similar to, for example, the Adderall and Ritalin um, uh, challenge that the United States is currently facing at home. Uh, where you have young students that need to study for exams, that need that productivity boost, and they find that in Captagon. And then finally, Captagon, because it's very popular across different democratic, or sorry, demographic, uh, not democratic, demographic um, uh, profiles, uh, Captagon has a very big appeal amongst those that are afflicted by food insecurity, by conflict, by trauma as well. And because of that, Captagon is seen as a substance that can really just get them through the day, that that, that can you know help sustain them as they wait on bread lines, that can help uh, them and give them an, a euphoric escape from trauma. And then also, of course, something that you know they can use to eat maybe one meal a day versus you know two or three meals a day. So there is that kind of aid that's perceived with Captagon. You say that there's different demographics that are uh, uh, appealed by Captagon. Um, that does that mean that is it it's affordable compared to other drugs that may be in the market? It depends on where you're buying it, right, and from whom you're buying it, and also what sort of Captagon pill that you're purchasing. So, for example, in the Gulf, Captagon, and that's the top demand market, particularly in Saudi Arabia, Captagon can go up to at least twenty five dollars per pill quite expensive. Um, but also in the Gulf, you tend to have some users that have more cash to spend, for example, wealthy youth that have a lack of recreational opportunities and want to do something fun, but also at the same time, because of the cultural taboos around drug consumption and the threat of very harsh punitive action, uh, Captagon is kind of seen as that middle ground. So you can see Captagon, particularly what's called the Lexus variant, which is White has less chemical additives, is a bit more considered pure. Uh, that's going for higher rates. But then you also have in, uh, for example, Jordan and Iraq and Syria and Lebanon themselves, Captagon can sometimes go for just a few cents, um, sometimes maybe up to $5 per pill. Uh, you know, it really does depend on what sort of pill you're getting, how many or how little chemical additives there are and then how close you are to production sites. Typically, the further away from manufacturing centers, the more expensive these pills get. So you said like 
there's a bit recently been an explosion in the production, particularly in Syrian regime-held territories. And I think there's been some documented evidence with ties to the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad. So are you able to elaborate exactly how this production is related to the Syrian government? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I've been researching Captagon really since the early, you're uh, sorry, not the early, but the late to mid 2010s. Um, first starting when Captagon was almost exclusively associated with ISIS. Captagon was a substance that, you know, many media organizations and many, um, you know, terrorist experts uh, thought to believe that, you know, ISIS was primarily producing, consuming and trafficking Captagon. Um, the evidence on that is a bit shaky. Uh, certainly ISIS does have a nexus with Captagon, but how high and how you know strong that is I, or, or strong that was remains to be seen. Um, what was more likely was that small warlords and individual communities were producing Captagon in very small amounts. But if you look at the numbers and if you crunch the data on Captagon throughout the early 2000s and even early to mid-2010s, Captagon seizures would be in the few hundreds, thousands, you know, sometimes a few pills on, you know, each person. It was certainly a popular drug and with a bit of notoriety, but at the same time, um, you know, you wouldn't see huge flashy seizures that were, you know, extremely, extremely, um, you know, industrial scale. Around 2018, that's when we started to see Captagon seizures in the millions of pills, um, amounting to, you know, and also being hidden very sophisticated, or sorry, hidden in sophisticated manners um, with industrial supplies or fruit and vegetables that indicate cooperation with major commercial entities and then also cooperation with port authorities um, linked with state governments. Uh, this was especially the case when it came to a number of shipments that were routed back to the port of Latakia, a port that is exclusively, you know, owned, that is very much embedded in regime held territory. And while it is owned and operated by a um, French shipping company, the regime has the majority of access and um, uh, agency over over this port. And because of that, you know, that really debunks this theory that ISIS was the one and the one actor behind the Captagon trade because they would not be able to access the port of Latakia or really any of these Mediterranean ports where Captagon started to explode out of. Along with, uh, you know, these shipments and these industrial scale shipments across the Mediterranean, we also started to see very similar trends along overland routes that were controlled by regime officials particularly the 4th Armored Division, which is commanded by Bashar al-Assad's brother, Mahir al-Assad, and also some companies and packaging that were associated with these seizures that would be traced back to key members of the Assad regime's inner circle, and some even being relatives, such as Mahir al-Assad, but also was seen Badi al-Assad and Samer al-Assad as well, cousins of the, of, of the president. So, over the past, I would say, three to four years, evidence has indeed racked that um, very key members of this inner circle, part of Damascus's base of power, um, both in the commercial and security realms, have commandeered Captagon as an alternative revenue source 
using it as a way to generate income amidst um, large-scale sanctions and, of course, the wartime economy that has worsened over time. And you've mentioned the fourth division. As far as uh, we understand, it is also been tied uh, with Iran and it's also been tied with Iran proxy groups in the region, um, such as Hezbollah, for example. Uh, is there any, um, do we have any um, any information whether these organizations, these proxy groups, Iran or even uh, Iran itself, may be uh, also invested in this trade? Certainly, I would say with the proxy groups that are involved on the ground, Hezbollah has a very prominent role in, in Captagon production and smuggling. I would say a bit more of a smaller and supportive role than compared to what we're seeing with the 4th Armored Division, Military Intelligence Directorate, Air Force Intelligence Directorate, and their overall security apparatus. But the 4th Division is extremely close with IRGC-aligned militias that operate in Syria, particularly in southern Syria. Uh, those militias have been linked to guarding these facilities facilitating uh, transportation, for example, offloading shipments onto trucks and, you know, using uh, checkpoints along controlled highways to also tax these these drug shipments. But I would say that especially as we've seen Captagon slowly expand into Iraq along the Al-Qaim highway, that in and of itself shows that Iran-aligned militias, particularly in Iraq's popular mobilization forces under that umbrella, um, they are likely um, increasing their involvement in, in, in this trade, just given that they control the security landscape in many of these Iraqi provinces and governance, uh, particularly along the Iraqi-Syrian border um, in, Al in the Al-Qaim area, area and also Anbar as well. Moving now to Syria and sort of the rapprochement with a lot of the Middle Eastern countries and the Arab League, for instance, how does Captagon fit into that rapprochement? And just, just because of the fact that, say, Saudi, as you said, is the highest consumer of Captagon, they have an interest in actually trying to motivate and incentivize Syria to stop producing su such a huge amounts of Captagon that is then flooding into the Saudi markets. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that Captagon very much is factored into normalization discussions, both intentionally and unintentionally. I think that it's very important to visualize and understand how Captagon factors in on two kind of separate planes. One is the perspective of the Syrian regime, and then the other is the perspective of the countries involved in normal, uh, normalizing and engaging these different normalization approaches. And I'll start with that perspective. Uh, you know, for, for countries that have been targeted by and have been afflicted by the Captagon trade, such as Saudi Arabia, such as Iraq, such as Jordan, and that have an interest in at least experimenting with normalization. Each country has different objectives and different levels and different green lines and red lines. Um, but I would say after the earthquake, that did, um, I would say, open the floodgates to experimenting with normalization with the Assad regime. Uh, they've all been seeking out a topic uh, where they can build momentum and even confidence that could essentially trickle in and build on and, and and lead to limited success on some of the harder, more stickier issues, such as the repatriation of refugees, 
a political settlement under UN Resolution 2254, uh, things like that, that have been extremely difficult, almost impossible to even discuss with the Syrian regime. And I think that many of these countries tried to take advantage of this period after the earthquake to try and see if they could move the needle with the Syrian regime, but first starting with something that is considered a low-hanging fruit. And because of Captagon, Captagon has been a major challenge in the region. However, it is still relatively new. It's still relatively niche. It is a topic that doesn't have a lot of familiarity. And also it's a topic that has not been as politicized as some of the other the other topics. Um, and because of that, I think that's why we saw a lot of these countries say, we want to talk about counter-narcotics collaboration first as a way to build confidence and momentum to see what we can get with the Syrian regime. Now, shifting to the regime's perspective, um, you know, this is absolutely an opportunity for them to wield leverage and even agency and use this as a card in the negotiation um, process with, with their regional counterparts. For them, you know, while they have publicly denied their role in Capticon production and trafficking, this is where I think behind the scenes and in these negotiations, they have touted that agency and that ability to clamp down a bit more, obviously, um, just because they can say, well, if you offer us this, we can then reduce Captagon flows to your country by 50%. And if you want it you know, up to 80%, which the, we have the ability to do, give us this. And for them, of course, one of the biggest objectives has, has been sanctions relief. And I think that we've seen the Captagon trade and their control over the Captagon trade used as kind of this pressure tactic to try and achieve sanctions relief. Um, we've also seen a series of violent clashes as well, along particularly along the Syrian-Jordanian border. And I think that that also has been used as a tactic, um, both you know increasing the, that tempo of violent incidents, but also decreasing that tempo as a way to encourage actors to come to the table or to reevaluate their normalization strategy. Has the Syrian regime's strategy worked? I don't quite think so. Um, I think that we're still seeing Captagon shipments slip through because it is a lifeline. And I think that the regime, while they have uh, probably the majority of agency to quash um, most shipments coming out um, from both overland and um, maritime ports, still it is an illicit trade and you're not able to have complete control over every single facet. And because of that, I think that they have really failed to significantly quash the Captagon trade enough to convince their regional counterparts to continue with the normalization process and for it to really significantly serve as a confidence building measure. So I think that countries have become quite smart in that the regime doesn't have an incentive to reduce its role in Captagon. There still is that financial incentive, that financial need. And because of that, we're starting to see kind of a return back to what was normal before the earthquake. And uh, during your research, have you been able to put, uh, let's say, a tag on uh, the importance of uh, Captagon trade for the Syrian regime? And with that, um, in case it is really important, uh, do you foresee that in case, uh, as you're mentioning, like they would reduce it, the production that is intended to go to Saudi or to other countries, maybe they would reroute the the traffic because 
it's still, as you're saying, a lifeline? Absolutely. So in terms of how much this is serving as a lifeline in an economic um, revenue source for the regime, with any illicit trade, there are so many unknowns. And since it's so it's done off the books, it's impossible to know exactly how much is being rerouted, but then also what it's being used for. And I will say that there was a, an excellent study that came out this past June um, by the Observatory for Political and Economic Networks that did put an estimate for how much the regime could be making, a very conservative baseline estimate, which was $7 billion in the last three years, which amounts to around, I think, like 2.4 or 2.7 um, per year annually. Um, sorry, my math on that is probably incorrect with the exact decimal point, but uh, around you know $2.5 billion per year for the regime. And this is just with those that have had proven connections with commercial uh, companies, with shipping companies, um, with the packaging companies, the pharmaceutical companies that have been involved and suspected of involvement in Captagon. Um, this is not identifying some of the lone wolves that are not affiliated with the regime or you know some of the outliers that could have those connections, but it's very hard to know. So likely that 2.5 uh, number, it could it could be increased since this is a very conservative and targeted um, estimate. Now, um, you know, in the grand scale of things, is that the entirety of the Captagon trades value? No. Um, the most, I would say, accurate estimate of how large the Captagon trade is in its totality is uh, what AFP put out in November of 2022, which is $10 billion annually. Um, so, you know, 2.5 out of 10, um, you know, that's still a significant, uh, you know, revenue stream for for the Syrian regime. And it's something that, you know, does rival a lot of its licit exports. So it does show that Captagon, who knows if it's the top source of revenue for the regime, um, but it's a significant uh, moneymaker for them. As to what it's being used for, we don't really know. But given that so many private sector officials and allies are involved, uh, it's very likely that you know this money is being used to line the pockets of the loyalists within the regime's inner circle, um, help fund, help arm, help sustain, help equip some of these militias, especially militias that are running small operations in very localized areas where Captagon is being circulated amongst the local population and they're using it to recruit, they're using it to rearm and it's just helping them sustain themselves. And that serves the interest of the regime, even if the government is not officially putting this money in you know, their formal banking system, um, this still serves their interest. They want these networks to survive. They want their allies to stay profiting um, and and to stay, you know, their livelihoods to be sustained. They need these business sector leaders to be happy um, in order to keep that loyalist support. So I would say that that's something that is very important. And to your question about, you know, now are we starting to see these routes change a bit with some pressure? <coughs> sorry, with some pressure on. Captagon flows being reduced. Yes, we are. We've seen a seizure so far of a laboratory in Germany. We've started to see an uptick in flows into, into Turkey as well. And we've started to see Captagon seizures and laboratories and warehouses seized in Iraq. 
So it definitely looks like they're starting to try and expand out from Syria. Many of these still are Syrian regime connected or sometimes regime, um, not even aligned, but sometimes controlled networks. So, you know, it still very much is keen, keeping uh, it within that very core familial network, uh, but they are expanding in their geographic scope. So given the fact that, that Saudi has become such a destination market, um, and then obviously we've talked about Iranian um, linked smugglers and things like this actually being a big source of uh, potentially the cross-border trade in Captagon. Could it potentially tie in in any way to the Chinese-backed Saudi-Iranian rapprochement as part of kind of a reorganization of the Middle East? I think that, you know, when it comes to the rapprochement process between uh, Syria and its regional neighbors, the rapprochement process between Iran and Saudi Arabia, I think, has a lot to do with it, uh, particularly the fact that Saudi Arabia has been extremely enthusiastic, gung-ho, and um, taking the charge uh, when it comes to the normalization approach. They were one of the most vocal uh, supporters for Syria's return to the Arab League this past spring. And, you know, really, when it comes to the Captagon and counter-narcotics issue, also led quite strongly there in especially encouraging a you know potential package or a potential kind of transaction between the Syrian regime um, and its regional counterparts. Uh, so I think that certainly Saudi Arabia, that rapprochement process has a lot to do with um, what we're seeing between Syria and its neighbors, particularly cooperation on counter-narcotics. However, um, you know, just like with this one normalization process, I think the other is important in the sense of have we seen much momentum between Iran and Saudi Arabia as of late? Uh, you know, are there follow up workshops and, and working groups being created to carry this through? Um, what sort of, you know, dynamism is, is being carried through? You know, we saw this announcement that came out um, earlier this year, but what what now what is what is what is going to happen next and will that also in turn sustain damascus's push for normalization with with it, with regional counterparts maybe iran is just satisfied with the return to the arab league um maybe the the regime is as well i doubt that it is i think the regime really would like sanctions relief um as would tehran um, so, you know, I think that it's going to be very important to watch how Saudi Arabia handles normalization and what more mileage this process has um, to understand, you know, how far this normalization process will go between Syria and its neighbors. Okay, now a little bit geographically, um, what are you foreseeing now on uh, everything we've said already in urbanization, uh, chain, potential change in trade routes? What do you think are the geopolitical uh, dangers that we can expect from coming from Captagon or its trade and use in the following decade? Even? Absolutely. Well, certainly Captagon does pose a series of long-term health concerns. It's very difficult to pinpoint exactly what that is and what that will look like given Captagon's changing evolution, um, or sorry, Captagon's evolving chemical formula. Uh, part of which I would also say is a challenge in and of itself. 
I mean, we haven't seen a lot of laboratory chemical analyses that have been publicly made. But what we know is that Captagon does not at all resemble the chemical composition of phenethylene, which was the original formula in the 1960s. So while it's still called Captagon, it really is not the Captagon of yesterday. It's its, its own thing now. And producers are really adding whatever they can find, whatever they can get their hands on, and adding that into Captagon's um, uh, chemical composition. So sometimes you'll see Captagon tablets that do have amphetamine will either have a lot of amphetamine, sometimes you know up to 40% or 45% inside. Uh, sometimes Captagon tablets won't have any amphetamine at all. Sometimes it'll just be caffeine and kind of a collection of of a number of other chemical additives. And because of that, it's really, really difficult to gauge like how this will have an effect on consumers. Uh, and because of that, we need more medical studies conducted on on Captagon and, and more laboratory analyses conducted as well. Uh, so def- there, there's definitely the health challenge, but also zooming a bit out as well, there's also going to be some severe security challenges, especially with the empowerment of these militias and gangs and um, organizations and entities that are involved in the smuggling of Captagon uh, that are reflecting a much more risk-accepting behavior. They're engaging in more clashes. They're engaging in violent, uh, violent acts and shootouts and car chases with law enforcement authorities along these border regions. And, you know, despite an increase in awareness of Captagon, um, it's been very difficult for a lot of these governments to increase and and, and uh, provide an uptick in assistance and um, uh, also personnel along these border regions. And because of that, that's going to be, I think, a, a long term issue for a lot of these countries such as Jordan and Iraq and Turkey. Uh, so, I mean, I think that security wise, this is going to be a problem. And then finally, geopolitically, I think that this shows for any state that is interested in sponsoring um, illicit drug cultivation and illicit drug uh, smuggling, that it's quite possible to do. And it's possible to use as a negotiation table or sorry, it's it's possible to use as a negotiation tactic um, at the diplomatic uh, table and in diplomatic fora. And because of that, you know, Syria is now proving to be a case study for a state using an illicit drug trade uh, to really achieve what it would like. And uh, the last question, geographically speaking, would be, um, I mean, uh, you see where it's produced and everything, you have several markets. You have the Middle East market, a North African market, you have Central Asian market, then you have European. Obviously, uh, because of the levels of drug consumption and the wealth of Europe is the biggest market uh, for for any drug in the region. Um, you've mentioned before that there's been seasons uh, in in Berlin, in, in Germany. Uh, why do you think this drug hasn't really entered the the European market that much? Uh, and do you think that it will actually enter at one point? Uh, I don't know what is your take there. Maybe Specifically because it's much more appealing, like it's a much bigger market with many more consumers. Absolutely. I think that, you know, there is room for creativity, new drugs like Captagon to enter into uh, the European market. I think the fact that we're starting to see Captagon produced in Europe uh, with this recent lab bust in Germany shows that it is quite possible. 
Uh, there's no way to know. We don't know how large that laboratory was um, that driven law enforcement was able to raid. Uh, it likely was small and it was likely being used to produce in Germany and then reroute it back into the Gulf, um, kind of exploiting local you know, ports and exploiting local routes um, to guise and to reduce suspicion related to these to these shipments. That being said, uh, you know, Captagon, as I mentioned, in the Middle East has so many different demographic profiles and so many different reasons for usage. It's hard to imagine a drug like Captagon couldn't be, uh, you know, maybe not necessarily extremely competitive, but, uh, you know, demanded um, in, in, in particular European markets. It is, I mean, after all, it, a lot of its functions do resemble that of Adderall and Ritalin. Um, in particular countries, particularly in the United States, there's a bit of a shortage with with these sorts of drugs. So, you know, perhaps that would increase, uh, you know, a demand for for your for your amongst European users. Uh, but it's it's hard to say right now. There is no cataloged, there is no um, uh, identified significant European market for Captagon, and because of that, it's very difficult to assess how popular it would be within the European market. I just have one last question, not specifically on Captagon, but basically the Syrian regime has taken back a lot of the territory that had originally lost to the US-backed separatists um, at the height of the civil war. And because they've been able to sort of recapture this territory and then politically re-engage, become back into the fold of the Arab League and been potentially strengthened with their position in, in power. Uh, is there any cause to be optimistic for Syria? Um, is there any chance, where as part of the political sorry, as a political dialogue, um, that there could be incentives to soften the stance towards dissidents, for instance, within the country? As of right now, I'll, I'll, I'll be completely honest. It looks like the regime has almost the complete upper hand. Certainly, there are protests that are ongoing right now in, in the South, particularly in Dada and in Sueda. Um, those are notable. I mean, certainly there are still spots of contention and vulnerability. Uh, and and those regions are very much perceived with volatility from the regime. But when it comes to, you know, territorial control and, and encroachment and uh, the resources at their, disp at their disposal, I think the regime has the upper hand. Um, so when we, you know, and, that, and that's what makes it very difficult when we approach the very, you know, I would say, sticky uh, topic of uh, a resolution under uh, uh, the UN resolution, sorry, a, a political settlement under the UN resolution 2254. Uh, the regime has not been incentivized, nor, you know, does it have any imperative to change its line? I mean, their red lines are pretty much the same. Their green lines are pretty much the same. Um, while they've experienced occasional challenge to, you know, the structure and to this regime, uh, really, they still hold the upper hand. And because of that, you know, I don't see any major concessions being made to opposition leaders or even to, you know, semi-autonomous entities such as the AANES in the Northeast. Um, so because of that, you know, the regime very much is would be entering negotiations with a relatively strong position when it comes to the uh, a final, uh, or sorry, when it comes to a political settlement under UN uh, 2254. 
Okay, I would like to finish a little bit. Uh, it's been super enlightening. I would like to go a little bit more technical in how is this study being done because also one of the reasons for this podcast to be is to show people how how does this research work, uh, how the uh, people get to their positions and so on. We'll ask you actually the last question uh, will be that. But I want to get a little bit, you've mentioned many times that it's uh, really difficult to know exactly like the exact data, it's completely off the books, everything like this. How does, um, without disclosing specifics, obviously, but how does your research go? Uh, where did you get all this information? How can you reach this, uh, these conclusions? Talking with as many people as possible, doing deep, deep, deep dives with open source information, um, you know, identifying fixers, people who've been on the ground, people who have either, you know, eyewitness accounts or, you know, have networks that are there that also are able to identify either the location of, you know, a smuggling route or a suspected location of production sites. And I think it's very important that, you know, with these sorts of intelligence reports and, you know, these sorts of findings, nothing is completely, completely concrete just because it's an illicit drug trade. And, you know, so a warehouse that might be set up two years ago may not be there anymore. But if there are five or six different sources pointing to a warehouse that is there, that at least gives, you know, I, I would say creates a need to showcase that and to put that information out there, um, engage with relative confidence that there at least was a warehouse or some sort of captagon related manufacturing site um, in this particular area. So I would say that, you know, trying to immerse yourself in the data, um, due diligence in terms of assessing comp different confidence levels with, with different reports, but just showcasing that information, showcasing the information that we know and the information that we don't know. And it's, it's okay not to know everything. Um, that's, I, that's a very important lesson that I learned through this process. And as you said, we like to ask everyone that comes on the podcast how how it is that you came to be in the position that you are. What drove you? What motivated you? Maybe or just your career path that led to becoming this expert in Captagon and all things lacking optimism about the Syria regime. Yeah, I know. Definitely unintentionally, uh, I did not, you know, stumble upon Captagon one day and say this is this is it for me. In fact. I tell a lot of people that Capricorn was only supposed to be a short-term research project back uh, when I was at the London School of Economics, and it was supposed to be potentially a journal article, maybe a blog piece, and then you know I would move back to what I originally was researching on, which was you know more security conflict-related um, uh, matters and, and projects in Iraq, in the Middle East, um, in Syria, um, and the Levant in general. And um, in, instead, Captagon became an issue that, you know, I, I researched a bit um, while I was at um, the International Drug and Policy Unit over at LSE, uh, took a bit of a break, um, wasn't able to publish it, and then started to see these very large scale seizures in 2019 and 2020, and then realized this was a project that absolutely needed a bit more focus. Um, that not many people were paying attention to at the time. And then it kind of blew up and uh, has now taken on its own life. Uh, so, you know, there is definitely not a complete intention in becoming, you know, a Captagon researcher. But at the same time, 
you know, I think having that passion and that interest in this intersection between the illicit, but also the insecure and the volatile and the unstable, that has been a kind of a driving interest that has allowed me to push and identify, uh, you know, other elements and stay passionate about this project. And so with that, we'd like to send a massive thank you to Caroline for helping us record this episode. And thank you to you for listening to it. So please get in touch. Let us know what you think. Subscribe to us on social media platforms where we release deep dives and other things explaining different geopolitical situations that we might not cover in an episode. And with that, this has been the Geopolitical Pickle. We're your hosts, Ronan Wanfrey, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>